This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Yona Jeremy Bob, who serves as the senior military correspondent, intelligence analyst, and literary editor for the Jerusalem Post. They discuss the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, Iran-Israel competition in the Middle East, and Iran's ongoing nuclear aspirations. Yona Jeremy Bob. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Well, you, of course, uh, are a noted journalist in Israel, uh, a lawyer uh, by training, but most recently a co-author of an excellent book, which we'll discuss today. It's called Target Tehran, How Israel is Using Sabotage, Cyber Warfare, Assassination, and Secret Diplomacy to Stop a Nuclear Iran and Create a new Middle East. Yoni, you, Jeremy, you wrote this with Ilan Evyatar. Uh, congratulations. Simon & Schuster published it. Um, Thank you. How long have you had it in mind to write the authoritative account of the Mossad and its work to undermine Iran's pursuit of a nuclear weapon? So I started to cover intelligence uh, for the Jerusalem Post about eight or nine years ago. Um, I was writing legal affairs until that point and um, really starting to seriously think about the book um, was probably in 2020. But the first time I started to think like maybe there's a book was April 30th, 2018, when Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reveals to the world the heist operation and, you know, our book, all shoots off of this operation January 31st, 2018, when the Mossad, really one of the most amazing operations in, in modern history, maybe in espionage ever, takes you know the physical original files, not you know not a thumb drive like in Mission Impossible, the physical files um, from Tehran, from the Shirabad uh, neighborhood in Tehran, under the nose of all of Iran's you know powerful you know security services, and you know the fact that he was putting all that information out there, I said hey. This could be a book, but you know, then it's like, wait a second, he's giving information to everybody. So, you know, why am I going to be able to do it? So, by 2020, um, I, I can't give the exact time and I can't say who, but I'd started to make some more serious contacts. And I said, you know, um, I could get some, you know, something more exclusive here. Um, I could bring something to this that not everybody has. Um, and already, you know, in 2021, uh, myself and Elon Evyatar were working seriously on this, um, adding in also the Abraham Accords side to it. You know, we sort of had, okay, there's sort of like the war and the peace side and developed into, you know, there were lots of different discussions about the titles. Um, and by uh, sometime the beginning, middle of 2022, we'd signed with Simon and Schuster. Um, and then the, the last major decision was, the book was going to originally end at the end of uh, Mossad Chief Yossi Cohen's era, mid-2021. But then in April, June 2022, um, and I have to say, because I'm under the Israeli censor, according to foreign sources, uh, the Mossad started eliminating, you know, Iranian scientists. People started falling off rooftops, you know, blowing up um, all kinds of people in 2020. We said, we can't skip over that. We need to put something about that in. And, uh, you know, a lot of new information was coming for also on the Abraham Accords and possible possibilities of normalization with the Saudis. So we ended up adding the two chapters at the end to sort of take it all the way to beginning of 2023. And it's a remarkable period if you, you know, you just bookended it, right? You have 2018, 
with the heists, which we'll we'll talk about now, and then all the way through you know 2022-2023 with a really aggressive activities in the part of Mossad as well as the diplomacy of the Abraham Accords uh, and then of course you publish the book and then soon after October 7th the Hamas massacre against Israel and the war that's ensued um, and we'll, we'll talk about how those events since October 7th have kind of impacted your thinking and outlook on the book. We'll get to that a little bit later, but let's start with two things. The first context for Israeli policy, which you know goes back to Menachem Begin, the prime minister of Israel at the time, actually President Reagan was in office, uh, 1981, who carried out Israel's first operation to take out a nuclear weapon nuclear weapons program by one of Israel's adversaries' enemies. In this case, it was Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And then that is almost the historical context for Israel's policy in terms of countering Iran's nuclear program, and then move to the heist without giving away too much so people go and buy your book, but why this was such a consequential moment and hugely uh, significant intelligence operation on the part of Mossad. So the context historically, and then the heist. Yeah, right. So historically, uh, again, there was this uh, Begin Doctrine, which uh, took place uh, during the Reagan administration, um, where Israel takes out Iraq's nuclear facility. Um, this happens again in 2007 um, under Ehud Olmert. Israel takes out the Syrian uh, nuclear facility. And the idea is, you know, Israel is not going to let any of its enemies get anywhere close to a nuclear weapon. Um, it's going to do whatever it has to do, you know, to take these out. Um, and so the heist, um, you know, nobody gets killed. We're, you know, taking, you know, materials. Um, but the problem there is, even though, and there are a number of Israeli uh, intelligence and defense officials will say that the JCPOA, the 2015 nuclear deal, was not all bad. It did, you know, Iran did give up a number of things. It did delay things. Um, but the fact that there was an endpoint and the fact that there were large holes having to do with ballistic missiles and how much the IAEA could inspect and Iran terrorism around the region and a number of other issues, um, you know, these needed to be addressed. And so the, the heist, getting Iran's, you know, secret nuclear files in such amazing, you know, tiny little detail made it impossible for the IAEA to ignore the issue. First, obviously, in 2018, it gave Trump and the Trump administration, you know, the smoking gun to pull out of the JCPOA, and they start the maximum pressure campaign. But let's say even today, where that's, that's not, you know, the policy of the Biden administration, the IAEA is still today, and, and they don't usually like to rock the boat, but they couldn't ignore it. And so they are still in a fight with Iran over open probes on these issues. That it, it's, all, it's all from the Mossad. They, they don't like to say it. Um, but all of the, their key information that they're going after Iran is from the Mossad. And as long as those issues are open, you know, Iran is under a significant more amount of pressure than it would have been whoever the administration is. Let, let's let's just take a second here to unpack a little bit of what you've just outlined. The IAEA, of course, is the UN body with tasked the responsibility to ensure compliance uh, with UN Security Council resolutions as it relates to uh, atomic, nuclear uh, weapons technology and the like. 
in 2018 when the heist took place, of course, that was during uh, the Trump administration. But we still had this lasting legacy of the Obama administration's deal, Iran deal, this, as you referenced, the JCPOA, where um, there are flaws with that deal, certainly from the Israeli perspective. You mentioned a few of those flaws. It didn't in any way curtail the ballistic missile programs of Iran, nor to do anything about Iranian terrorism. And there seemed to be an interest on the part of Prime Minister Netanyahu that if we could only show how robust and how significant Iran's nuclear program is by bringing their so-called archive, then the IAEA, more broadly the UN, and the world would know this is a serious problem they have to deal with, and it's not simply Bibi Netanyahu's narrative and Israeli narrative. Truly, Iran has been violating UN Security Council resolutions. That's the kind of the theory of the case that ushered in the pursuit of this Pretty brazen and daring operation. Uh, kind of confirm that's the the context that I'm, I'm hearing you describe, um, and then talk a little bit more about this archive. It seems so um, unusual that in the 21st century you would have such a consequential program where the masters, the owners of the program, would rely on paper to keep. Uh, its records, as opposed to, as you mentioned before, some sort of, you know, flash drive. Uh, explain that as well. Sure. So, um, first of all, you got the context exactly right. Um, and again, I, I emphasize the IAEA, you know, sort of the UN nuclear inspectors, they didn't want to catch Iran in the act, all right? They, you know, sort of what they want to do is do inspections. That's sort of like their, their business is to keep to doing inspections. And when you fight with a country about the inspections, they tend to kick your inspectors out. They tend to shut off your cameras, which Iran has been doing in a lot of instances. They don't want to be, they want, they want to get along with the country they're inspecting. And it was just too much evidence. You know, the evidence was too overwhelming to ignore. Um, and especially, you know, when, when they, they spent, they took their time, I think six months, eight months, until they really followed up on the evidence. But when they finally did, um, you know, they went to some sites and they took soil samples and Iran had, you know, bulldozed things and plowed things, but not well enough. And they still found, you know, illicit traces of uranium that weren't supposed to be there. And Iran to this day, you know, hasn't, you know, explained that. So, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, this, you know, this heist changed the entire framework Certainly, with how the Western world and the you know the neutral UN IAEI would view Iran as either complying with the agreement or being a violator. Um, in terms of the paper, so this is you know one nice thing. It, it did take us a while to turn this book out, and Benjamin Netanyahu's book came out a little bit before ours, and he uh, gives over in his book a conversation between him and Yossi Cohen, who was the Mossad chief, where. He says to Yossi, Yossi Cohen, says, we might be able to get the physical files. And he goes, what? And exactly like you said, in this day and age, they're going to keep physical files? And Yossi Cohen is like, well, you know, the Iranians are really smart. You know, they might think that, you know, we'll only be looking, you know, for, you know, for digital and that we're so such good, so good at hacking. So if they go retro, we won't be able, you know, to see it and to catch it. And the truth is, it was a brilliant idea. Hiding it where they hid it in the abandoned warehouse was a brilliant idea, except that the Mossad already knew where the old sites were. So when they moved it to the abandoned warehouse, 
the Mossad was able to follow it there. Other than that, the Mossad probably wouldn't have found it. Um, but so it, it wasn't a dumb idea. It was a smart idea from a certain perspective, but the Mossad's penetration was that good that it caught it anyway. Fascinating. So it, you have basically Iran has seen the the reach and the power of Israeli cyber attacks. And there were many you could point to, Stuxnet comes to mind, where they were able to thwart and undermine the Iranian nuclear program. And it had developed such a reputation within Iran's leadership that they said, okay, we have to keep our nuclear secrets uh, in, in paper form because it's, it's vulnerable digitally. Um, and what's also remarkable about this, and maybe take a second now uh, to, to discuss this, is even as Iran is changing its tactics and, you know, moving everything to paper form in their archives and, and putting in this warehouse outside of Tehran, the reach of the Mossad is so significant that they're tracking this to the point where this amazing actor, Yossi Cohen, who was Bibi Netanyahu's national security advisor, turned subsequently the head of Mossad, is aware of all this. I mean, it's it's reading the book, it was remarkable to me the reach, the depth of the Mossad into Iran. So take a minute to talk about Yossi Cohen and how the Mossad has developed based on your reporting in your, your book, uh, the, kind of this, this presence uh, in all forms of understanding and, and, and being able to penetrate Iran. Yeah, so I, I had understood the scope of the Mossad, let's say in Syria, uh, during the Syrian civil war, when you know years ago, people were talking, some people were telling me that Israeli helicopters could just basically go in and out, in and out almost whenever they wanted. I was like, okay, Syria doesn't have an army anymore. There's so, Iran is a very, very centralized state, has tons of layers and you know, S-300 anti-aircraft missile, you know, advanced missile defense, um, the IRGC, the intelligence ministry, you know, tons of security layers. And this operation, they had dozens, dozens of people involved on the ground. You know, it's not one or two people. Um, they took six hours and 29 minutes. Again, Mission Impossible, you're thinking like, all right, we have two minutes, 90 seconds, 30 seconds, they're going to be knocking down the door to catch us. Six hours, 29 minutes, dozens of agents involved on the ground. And the only way I can explain it is um, there is, again, a power to democracy and a weakness to autocracy. And you have in Iran, um, before you even get to the Shiites who don't like the regime, there's over 20 million minorities who don't like the regime, not just don't like the regime. They don't see, they don't really even see themselves as part of the same country. They're like, all right, you're occupying us. So we're occupied basically in Iran and that might go on forever, but like they're, you know, from completely different cultures and backgrounds, um, you know, whether it's the Kurds, the Balukis, you know, there's a bunch of different groups. And so there is such an enormous group to recruit from um, that that does allow uh, even taking into account some, not some of the bus when they say Iran says they arrested Mossad agents are false and they really are, you know, arrested political enemies and they're just calling them Mossad agents. But sometimes it's probably true, and the Mossad replaces them because there are that many people in Iran who hate the regime. Uh, so you hear you're talking about the the craft of human intelligence, um, the operations, the sort of thing that you think of 
perhaps to the 20th century spy operations, but Israel carries out in Iran. And, and, and as you know, there are lots of partners, people they could uh, bring in and, 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 and have as, as agents, paid agents or otherwise, because they're either, you know, they're aligned with Israel in terms of uh, countering the Iranian regime. Again, we're with Yona Jeremy Bob, author of Target Tehran, uh, and we're discussing this 2018 nuclear archives heist in the part of Israel's prominent intelligence agency, the Mossad. But there were Israelis on the ground. It wasn't just partners, people who lived there, and, and, and even confirming the location of the archives was a remarkable Remarkable bit of research and, and information in terms of uh, a female Mossad agent on the ground, confirming its out, presence. Changing her outfit, you know, she must have walked by, you know, maybe a dozen times and, you know, different different days, different times of day, but she kept changing her outfit so she looked like a different person and she just had some sort of, you know, a covert, you know, case. She would just like walk by with the case and has some sort of camera that goes through the case or, you know, has a tiny little hole. And, uh, you know, basically just, you know, took pictures of everything. So they knew, you know, everything, when the security was there, you know, how to, you know, uh, hack, you know, the footage or deal with the, you know, alarm systems, uh, when the security would be down, when it would be less, um, what was going to be inside in terms of, you know, they had these really powerful safes and they needed to blowtorch through them at 3,600 degrees. They bought the exact same safes, you know, from whoever and practice it in like another country before and to make sure that they would be able to blow through them. So every single piece of the operation was planned. And this is something that Yossi Cohen um, is known for. There are, there are, you know, critics of Yossi Cohen sometimes that he's, um, you know, a little bit too much uh, about, you know, himself and too much media attention from Mossad director. Um, and there's some other criticisms we have uh, in the book in terms of whether he was too close uh, potentially to Netanyahu, but as a Mossad agent in chief, everybody respects him. Even the critics say his, you know, attention to detail, his creativity, his, you know, willingness to take risks, but calculated risks, like not stupid risks, calculated risks to achieve, you know, big things um, was very impressive. Two questions on this, and and listeners and viewers are going to have to get the book to see all the detail of of the heist, the 2018 heist we're discussing, where Mossad went into Iran, found the archives of their nuclear program, and then pulled it out of Iran under the nose of the regime. Uh, when the regime found out, there was little to nothing they could do. A fantastic story. But but two things to follow on. This seems to be uh, a remarkable amount of disclosure. You mentioned the Netanyahu book, your book, and this had come out subsequent um, to the event, even prior to your book and Netanyahu's book, is that intended? Is there some sort of uh, intent here to disclose as a way to deter the regime to kind of really mess with the mindset of the Iranians to know that Mossad's in their country and can do what they want at a time of their choosing? G give me your take on that. Yeah, so there's two, two separate uh, points here. Um, there's the sort of original decision to go public on the heist. And we have a whole chapter about that decision and how it played out because it was a major, major deal to make all of that public. Again, normally the Mossad, if they pulled out any operation, they would share their findings with the CIA, 
with MI6 in England, with the UNIAEA inspectors, you know, other allied intelligence agencies, they wouldn't tell the world. And Netanyahu and Cohen wanted to make it a big deal publicly in order to give Trump, as we talked about before, the smoking gun if he wanted to pull out of the nuclear deal to do so, and in order to put the pressure on the IAEA that they wouldn't just be able to treat it as business as usual, they would need to look you know, deeply into this issue and get into where they are now. Again, we're five years after the operation, IA is still fighting with Iran. And in 2018, they were, if not best friends, they were getting along really well. And they were like, oh, you're in compliance, you're compliance. And now they're saying, your, you know, your explanations, you know, are, are incoherent, or I think they have some diplomatic speak, not factually, you know, consistent, or you know, something like that. Um, so that's the heist. But then there's a second point, which is, you know, hinting they don't, and then I still have to say, you know, the Israeli censor, you know, foreign sources um, about the assassinations of Mohsen um, Fakhri Zadeh, you know, the father of the Iranian bomb in November 2020. Um, Israel's role in getting, according, I'm just going to say, according to foreign sources, all here. Israel's role in assisting the United States in targeting Qasem Soleimani. Um, Israel's role in blowing up Natan's nuclear facilities, not once, but twice. Once in July 2020, once in April 2021. The Karaj nuclear facility in June 2021, and onward and onward. And then some people thought that when Yossi Kohn was replaced um, by David Barnea, the current Mossad chief, that these hints would stop coming out, and they've continued to come out. And I think it's exactly what you just said, that Israel now says, you know what? We are a regional power, and we are going to be in Iran's face about how much we can get to you if you try to cross that line so that you will not even think about crossing that nuclear line. Well, great points, and it really goes to the heart of, of, of the book and kind of the strategic and policy implications of, of the heist. What I understand you saying is this was successful not only because it gave vital information to Israel on Iran's nuclear weapons program, but it has created a tension between the body designated by the United Nations to ensure compliance uh, with Security Council resolutions, that is the IAEA, uh, to now, five years later, there's still this tension, as you note. They are still, they have been shaped by what Israel found, what Israel captured in those archives, and they can't say that Iran's compliant. So that's successful. And then, and then relatedly, what I what I hear hear you saying is, now that Israel has established that Iran has violated Security Council resolutions, that is pursuing a nuclear weapons program against the mandates of the world, Israel is essentially acting justly as it takes out carries out these operations to thwart the nuclear weapons program. In other words, in the absence of the archive getting out there, people would have been skeptical. Israel would have invited critique. Of course, this is a bit of a mindset prior to October 7th uh, because there's free license to critique Israel now, as we'll get into. Uh, but, but people understand, the diplomats around the world, that Israel is responding to a nuclear weapons program that Iran is pursuing that no one can deny based on the archives. And so it, it unleashed the ability for Israel to be a little more brazen, a little more daring, a little more public in terms of what it's doing to counter Iran's nuclear program. Those would be perhaps the twin outcomes of, of this amazing uh, heist that you capture so well. I would agree with everything that you said. The only thing I'd meant to say a lot more brazen. Um, yes. Because, you know, you see 
The IAEA issues its first condemnation of Iran in June 2020, the end of June 2020, the first condemnation in about eight years. And within a week, that's when the Natanz nuclear facility happens to blow up and something like another dozen facilities, not all of them, you know, even according to me, even according to foreign sources were the Mossad, but definitely there were others that were. Um, and so, yeah, that, that absolutely gives Israel the legitimacy to do much more brazen actions against the nuclear program. And as you said, we'll get into it, but if you think about how bad what Hamas did to Israel on October 7th, and Hamas is the weakest link in sort of the Iranian universe of the Iranian proxies, think about what Iran could do and what Iranian's proxies could do if it already had nuclear weapons and if the Mossad hadn't been stopping it for the last 25, 30 years. Very interesting point. We'll get into that, as you note, just a bit. But Iran has made progress on the nuclear weapons program. And in some respects, there's a critique of the Trump administration that when it exited the Iran deal that President Obama put into place, the JCPOA, it allowed Iran to pursue the program. It wasn't breaching the agreement because the Trump administration had pulled out. And reports out, you know, seems to be general consensus that Iran is on that threshold of, of being a breakout state. They have, I don't know, 90 percent, you know, enriched ura uranium. Your book gets into the centrifuges they may be using and the sophistication and the various facilities. But, you know, it, it, you don't have to read too many you know, news articles to basically put the following together. They have a number of facilities uh, underground with sophisticated centrifuges, which is, you know, the, the spinning to get uh, to the level of enrichment required for a weapon, a nuclear weapon. And despite what Israel has done, and you outlined a number of things, particularly starting in 2020, and it continues to this day, they're at the precipice of breakout. So in that respect, perhaps the heist and the events that followed has been good, but probably not good enough. Because prior to the JCPOA, the debate was Iran's at 15, 20, 30%. And they've made tremendous progress in the years since 2016, 2017. Yeah, so we have um, in one of the chapters, um, we, I think, conclude near one, one of the end of the, one of the ch later chapters, we say uh, the Mossad's mission is not done and it may never be done. Uh, meaning what is so challenging about Iran isn't just that it is trying to develop nuclear weapons per se, or that it has the IRGC. It's that they are such long-term thinkers. It's that they are, you know, playing not for the next five years, but for the next 50, 100 years. They're looking deep into the future, and they are patient, and they are committed, and they're dedicated, and that is the toughest kind of enemy. So the fact that, look, Israeli intelligence said in the 1990s that if nobody intervened, Iran could have a nuclear weapon in about two or three years. The fact that that hasn't happened, I give a large amount of credit to the Mossad. Does that mean that it won't happen in the future? No. I mean, the Mossad needs to keep close watch. I would hope that the United States would also, I, I don't think the last, the current or the last two administrations actually would have stepped in militarily uh, to stop an Iran nucle Iranian nuclear bomb. I hope there will be some U.S. president who would be able to, you know, step in like that and Israel wouldn't be alone in having to, you know, launch a preemptive strike in, you know, October 2025 
possibly, you know, when a lot of the restrictions on the, the centrifuges that you mentioned come off, even according to the JCPOA, meaning even if the Biden administration or somebody goes back into a nuclear deal, um, key restrictions come off in October 2025. So whether there's a deal or no deal, there could be a crisis point from Israel's perspective at that point. So yeah, the job is not done. And the, you know, the Trump administration, um, I would give it credit from a policy point of view in terms of putting pressure on Iran. But when that pressure wasn't enough, when it didn't get Iran to stop, when Iran started to enrich larger amounts of uranium um, and get closer to a nuclear weapon, there was no plan B because the Trump administration also really wasn't ready to have a viable military threat um, or to you know do whatever else it needed to do to get the entire world to snap back sanctions. Let, let's move to the United States now and actually jump forward um, from after your book concludes to where we are today. But I want to do so by pulling out a chapter in your book, which was the assassination of the leader of the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, Soleimani, which was carried out by the Trump administration in January of 2020. This, of course, was a, a strike operation, highly consequential, not entirely driven, perhaps if at all, by the Iranian nuclear weapons program, but far more uh, driven by the IRGC leader targeting U.S. servicemen and women, U.S. forward operating bases in Syria and Iraq, and being responsible for the death of Americans. Yet, in your judgment, as you write in the book, it absolutely tied into and, imp and impacted uh, Iran, U.S.-Israel relationship. It relied on, that is, the United States relied on Israeli intelligence. And it seemed to usher in a series of Israeli Mossad operations uh, collected by your expert reporting, your colleague, uh, that show um, attacks on Iranian facilities, nuclear facilities. So talk, talk a little bit about the U.S. role, kind of you, the United States' own challenges dealing with Iran and Iranian targeting of U.S. Uh, servicemen and women and U.S. interests and, and kind of the, the impact of the Soleimani strike. Yeah, so, um, I mean, this history goes back, you know, a very large amount of time, um, but sort of cutting closer to the strike January 3rd, 2020, there's a point where um, about half a year before, um, a very expensive drone of the United States is, is shot down, and the Trump administration, you know, Trump is furious, and he's, you know, ready to really show the Iranians who's boss, and he has all sorts of options to strike, and it's approved, and it's about to happen, and he calls it off at the last second, and there's a whole bunch of Trump administration officials that are beyond themselves, you know, maybe even ready to resign, they, they stay on anyway, you know, to sort of try to keep things in, like, the right direction, whatever. Um, but um, that's sort of a low point. Um, and then what we see is, you know, and you, you can see it, we have, you know, basically some of the inner workings of, of some of these debates of the, the highest levels in the Trump administration. Once an American soldier is killed, and once there is video footage of the U.S. Embassy in Iraq looking like something's going to happen to it, like what happened with Hillary Clinton in Benghazi in Libya, you know, some years earlier, 
that those are the types of things that really disturb Trump um, because, you know, again, he's, you know, sort of concerned by a mix of perception and policy and the two things sometimes go together. And so Trump is saying, I'm going to look weak. I'm not going to look weak. And so he makes this incredible decision uh, to go after probably the number two most powerful person, you know, in Iran. Technically, Qasem Soleimani is the head of the Quds Force in the IRGC, has a boss who's the head of the IRGC, but really he was way more powerful than him. And Soleimani was, you know, not even always covering his tracks, was going around the last several years, basically since the nuclear deal was signed, um, sort of publicly, like, I know I'm too big to kill, so to speak. And what happens is between Yossi Cohen and Mike Pompeo, who is the CIA director and then the U.S. Secretary of State, changing various people's feelings on this, slowly but surely, until it gets into the higher rankings, and then there's more people in favor of it. And then when Trump is finally ready, enough people are in favor of it, that when he orders it, people are like, all right, this isn't crazy anymore. Um, so that's, that's how that's how it happens. And in, 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 from a policy perspective, um, Iran is suddenly like, well, we thought this Trump person first, we thought he was tough, but then we thought that he was, you know, sort of fake, you know, just all talk. And actually, now we don't know what this guy is capable of. And so you see, for at least some period of months, they slow down in terms of attacking Americans. They slow down in terms of the nuclear program. Um, and in a variety of areas, they sort of are stepping back because they don't know what could happen to them next. Um, and then the problem is that, you know, that there isn't a follow through after that. Um, but at least from the Israeli perspective, I think you're right. That I, all, along with the vote from the IAEA, I think that does give legitimacy to a lot of the Israeli actions that came later, even if, you know, let's say the Trump administration uh, doesn't necessarily take other actions along the lines of what they did to Soleimani after that point. We're with Yona, Jeremy, Bob, author, co-author of Target Tehran, a fascinating account of Israel and Mossad's attempt to undermine and stop Iran's pursuit of a nuclear weapon. We were just discussing the Soleimani strike in 2020. I want to jump forward to where we are today as we deal with this triangle between Iran, Israel, and the United States. Of course, the Soleimani strike was carried out by the United States. It benefited from coordination between our intelligence community in the United States and Israel's intelligence community. Um, the relationship between the United States and Israel during the Biden administration has been icy at best. Netanyahu and President Biden, notably, uh, I'd never had a meeting in the White House. Um, it took some time even for the two of them to to coordinate. But that all changed after Hamas's brutal attack on Israel on October 7th. And to date, the Biden administration, President Biden, Biden has been very clear in terms of the support of Israel and its right to defend itself against Hamas and to deal with the security threat from Gaza. There are debates on policy over ceasefires and the like that's playing out, but no one would disagree broadly. Uh, President Biden has been supportive of Israel's objectives to defeat and destroy Hamas. But there's another thread in this war that some are focusing on, but it seems to be second or third order focus, and that is Iran's role here. And that really ties in uh, to your book. And here, 
the United States in particular has been victim to of, of Iranian attacks, either Iran itself and the IRGC or its proxies in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Lebanon, targeting U.S. servicemen and women forward operating bases. Uh, I mean, over 50 in this period of time since October 7th. Yet, the United States and President Biden in particular has tried to suggest somehow whatever the United States is dealing with in terms of attacks from Iran and Iranian-backed uh, actors, it's somehow separate and apart from the Hamas attack on Israel, despite the fact that Hamas is biggest patron in the form of dollars and cents and ideological support comes from Tehran. Take us through this triangle and how you're looking at it now. This is going to be on the scope of your book, but your daily reporting at Jerusalem Prose, no doubt, focuses on this. And the Jerusalem view, the D.C. view, and Tehran's view uh, post-October 7th. Okay. So, um, I would say, you know, the Jerusalem view is even though Hamas took its own actions on October 7th, that there is no way, but both of you and I are, you know, former lawyers, but for the fact yeah. that Iran had given the money, logistics, and most important, the training, you know, if you look at the sophistication, I could spend half an hour just talking about what I what Hamas did, shooting 3,000 rockets in four hours, at the same time as sending three dozen drones, at the same time as sending motorized hang gliders, which nobody had even paid attention to, at the same time as invading Israel in 29 different places, all synchronized perfectly, and all without almost anybody knowing about it, even on the Hamas side beforehand. That is serious Iranian training, um, along again with the logistics and the funding, so it couldn't have happened without Iran. So from the Israeli perspective, um, even though you know the focus right now is, is Hamas, um, get rid of Hamas in terms of ruling uh, Gaza, you're, you're not hearing too many people keep saying about annihilating Hamas because they're not actually succeeding at doing that, but eliminate them as the effective rulers of Gaza is sort of like, I think, what people are talking about now, um, so that they can't come back in control. Um, the long-term focus is on Iran. Um, you know, to take it a, a step further from the Israeli perspective, a specific order from Iran was given to Hezbollah on October 8th. Iran said, Hezbollah, provoke, get involved, not just a little bit, you know, get on the board. Hezbollah has fired between rockets and anti-tank missiles over a thousand times in Israel in the last, you know, month and a half. Had they gone to their full capabilities? No, but this has not been like, you know, a minor skirmish. This has been a serious conflict in the north. That's from Iran. The Houthis in Yemen have fired ballistic missiles several times in Israel. We're not talking about something that the Iron Dome, the Iron Dome is sort of Israel's famous short-range missile system that could short shoot down short-range short, short rockets. We're talking about the arrow that shot, had to shoot down ballistic missiles in the atmosphere. Um, so all of this is from Iran, militias in Syria. All of this is from, from the, the Jerusalem perspective. Hamas is the short-term enemy, and we have to deal with them. But the long-term is we need to deal with Iran, we need to deal with Hezbollah, and that's going to remain to be an issue for the next year. That's the threat for the next five years, the, ne the next 25 years. I think in Washington, 
like you said, there's there's a problem that you know the United States has reacted a little bit. There have been a couple of counterattacks by the United States, but the fact is it hasn't slowed down the Iranians. So if you you know people never know what deterrence means. You know what deterrence means if the other side keeps shooting at you. So the deterrence hasn't worked yet. And uh, I mean, if I was giving advice to the Biden administration, I would say they need to hit a lot more targets. I don't think they need to go to war. Um, you know, this doesn't need to necessarily be in a war in the Middle East. But I think, uh, what, you know, what we've seen with Israel and Hamas is, um, you know, when you have, you know, a military power that is that much more powerful than the other side, even though you might be worried about what they might do, guess what? The United States is so much more powerful than Iran. They can do a lot more than they have done. And they could be getting Iran to back off without getting into regional war. Um, I, you know, I, again, why isn't the Biden administration uh, doing that? They're they're more worried about the regional war, and they figure. But they know, also seem to be parsing. Just just one point here. I mean, I, I take your view that the Biden administration doesn't want to do anything to lead to a wider regional conflict, keep Hezbollah out of it. For the most part, despite the skirmishes on the border and the rockets coming from Hezbollah. It hasn't unleashed the full northern front that some thought might take place. But the Biden administration, in terms of their language, the diplomacy has been very careful, almost to the point where it's um, hard to understand the logic because the the facts and the evidence run so contrary to it that whatever attacks the United States has been victim of in Iraq, in Syria— is not at all tied to the Hamas war. Uh, clearly, Israel doesn't view it that way. Uh, my sense is Tehran, of course, it's all connected. Uh, and I'm assuming your, you know, your explanation is that the Biden administration couldn't make that connection because then it would place the United States and whatever action they take in the context of the Hamas war. And then then by definition, I suppose they, they view themselves as part of a regional conflict. It, it, it creates a broader conflict, but it's, 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 it's hard to explain. Yeah. Look, the United States has more interests than Israel. All right. Israel has like its sort of immediate interest with, you know, the threats that are mostly on its borders and Iran. The United States is worried about, can it stay in Iraq, you know, long term, uh, to the extent that it still is in Iraq, um, you know, what its relations are with the Iraqi government. Um, it still wants to have some sort of deal with Iran in the future, so it wants to keep, you know, something about that open um, in the future. Um, and in general, it's, you know, it's, it's not the Biden administration. I think there have been cases where they've used diplomacy more effectively than the Trump administration used dip diplomacy. Um, but in general, they've been very, very, uh, restrictive about using force. Um, and one of the things we talk about um, in our book is that you need to be able to do both. You know, sometimes you have administrations that know how to, you know, be threatening but not use diplomacy, and you have administrations that know how to use diplomacy and not be threatening, and you sort of need to put both together to deal with Iran. And I, I think uh, the Biden administration is worried about so many what-ifs that could happen, and to some extent that's freezing them from being able to sort of take control of the narrative uh, to achieve, you know, any any specific goal other than um, they're, you know, hoping to sort of Israel will end the war with Hamas as fast as possible, and then sort of the region can go back to being stable. Let's uh, focus on your conclusion. A fascinating way to end the story, and then uh, we'll hit the lightning round and and wrap up this great conversation. 
you conclude your book by a fictional scenario. It's 2024. And the Mossad carries out, or the IDF carries out Mossad promise, which is to prevent Iran from having obtaining a nuclear weapon. And they do so by a military strike, an airstrike. And I could see prior to October 7th that actually being on the table. You have a Biden administration that somewhat ambivalent about putting the screws on Iran. They, despite their efforts, they have been able to recreate. The JCPOA, the Obama administration era agreement, Israel feels somewhat isolated uh, given the tension between Biden and Netanyahu. You're in this period uh, towards the end of an administration, beginning of a new administration. And so you imagine this scenario. Uh, fascinating. Bunker buster munitions, F-35, you know, fifth generation fighter aircraft going in, penetrating Iranian airspace and and that's kind of the launching point for your conclusion. But then, as we've just been discussing, events change everything. And October 7th, it changed the region for all the reasons you've outlined. How would you rewrite your conclusion now that we're on the other side of October 7th? So in terms of Iran itself, um, I don't think we necessarily would. You know, Iran getting a nuclear weapon is an existential threat. It's really the only existential threat. And so Israel needs to be ready to have that viable military threat on the table, along with the Mossad, along with diplomacy, to prevent Iran from crossing the line. I think the rewrite here is that Israeli intelligence was doing a very good job generally on Iran and maybe doing a good enough job on following Hezbollah, but totally ignored Hamas. Uh, because they were like, Hamas is so weak, they're so pathetic, they don't have any serious weapons, they don't have any, you know, Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets and precision guided rockets, Hamas doesn't have any of those things. You know, Hezbollah is well-trained uh, forces that have fought for 10 years in Syria, Hamas doesn't have that. So they just didn't take them seriously. And so I think, you know, that's, you know, the biggest, you know, intelligence failure was you have to take everybody seriously, even sort of like the least threatening, I think, uh, we can't only rely on technology. Um, it's going to be more people serving in the Israeli army for longer because we're going to need not a couple more hundred soldiers on all the borders. We're going to need thousands of soldiers on the borders on a regular basis, even if 99% of the time they're not doing anything, just to deter this from happening again. Um, and then the big question out of all of this is, will Iran be more or less deterred about crossing the line to nuclear weapon? Will they be less deterred thinking, hey, we can fool Israeli intelligence, or will it be more deterred with sort of the finer picture of what you see in Gaza right now? Um, there's so many stories about it, but one of the stories, forget about how many Hamas terrorists have been killed, forget about how much of the civilian population has moved. The buildings in Gaza, the northern Gaza, are gone. There basically isn't northern Gaza. There basically isn't northern Gaza. Um, when the war is over, the civilians aren't just going to be able to come back. They will eventually. But it's, it's not just going to be building houses, it's going to be rebuilding the whole neighborhood, the infrastructure, everything. And so I think Israel's hope is that that was also a signal to Iran, we could do this to you too. Um, and I, I will say that I was given a briefing after we finished the book where I saw the number of targets that the Israeli Air Force has put together in Iran if they had to strike. And it's something to be deterred by.
Hmm. Let's move to the lightning round. Congrats uh, on this great book, Target Tehran. A uh, great read. Um, Page Turner and so informative. And for anybody who wants to understand Israel, Iran, the nuclear weapons program, this really kind of filters all the noise and gives you a clear understanding of what's at stake and how each side has sought uh, to counter each other. Lightning round. Here's where we ask all our guests to share their favorite Reagan quote, book, uh, and speech. Give us all three, two, or just one. What do you have? So I'm going to go with uh, Mr. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Um, this is uh, Reagan's uh, speech, which you know some people will give credit for bringing down the Soviet Union. Obviously, it's more you know there's more complex things than that. There were things going on inside the Soviet Union for you know for decades. But I think you know he did put a certain level of public pressure, um, and you know he was a you know very strong communicator. He did put a certain amount of public pressure on the Soviet Union. Um, with that speech, um, and uh, briefly connecting it uh, to the book, the Abraham Accords um, are made possible by what Israel does, but what the Mossad does. But if there was still was a Soviet Union, then all of these Arab countries wouldn't be interested in Abraham Accords in the first place. So the fact that the Soviet Union falls, um, you know, again, is like an event that, you know, people sort of forget about, but it changed. You want to talk about changing history that changed the next 50 to 100 years. Going to Jeremy Bob, congrats on your book. Thanks for being on the show. Hope to have you back some point. Great to be here. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.